0: Well, hey, Rocky Peak, how are you doing today? Hey, great to see you, uh, both here and over in the Ridge. want to welcome you. Uh, My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And so we're going to be going to our time of teaching right now. We do this every weekend. Uh, And it's inside your program. It's a green and white message note sheet. You'll definitely want to follow along with that because it'll be very helpful as we go in. Uh, If you guys are all set, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and continually pursuing you as a church. Lord, we're just so thankful for what you've done in our lives, the way you're leading and guiding the Holy Spirit. Just reading this morning, Lord, what Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go. And I think we feel like that as a church, God. We're just hungry for your presence. We're so thankful for what you're doing, the way you're leading us week by week, but we want more. And so, God, we're coming today just with hearts uh, hungry. We think what you said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. And God, we pray that today you would fill us as we seek you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Our story starts today. Um, His day started like any other day. He got up early. He headed out uh, towards a job. And uh, there was nothing in his life at this point. There was nothing in his experience that would suggest this day would be any different than any other day. But what he didn't know is that this day was destined to change his life forever. And there is really no way he could have seen this coming. There's no one, anyone could have seen this coming. But about midday, it's about noon, and uh, all of a sudden he sees his brother coming from a distance, and uh, his brother says, hey, something's happened. We need to have a family meeting. And uh, dad says, everyone needs to be there. And so he leaves his, his, uh, his job. He leaves what he's doing, kind of ties up some loose ends, heads in towards the, uh, the house, and when he gets there, sure enough, all his brothers are there, his family there, his dad's there. But what shocks him the most is the man in the middle of the circle, a man that he never thought he would see in his whole life. And it just sends both excitement, fear, and anticipation all through him at the same time, wondering what is going to happen on this day. Well, today we are continuing the series that we've been in uh, the last couple of months. For those who are new, it's a series is called Unfiltered, capturing a true image of Jesus. Now, uh, for those who are new, this is a series. It's about Jesus, and I think most people would agree, uh, who've studied this, you know, historians, uh, kind of social scientists types, that if you were to say who is the person who has influenced human history more than anyone else, uh, I think hands down it would go to Jesus of Nazareth, whether you believe in him or not, in in a spiritual sense. Um, But the irony is, what we've been unpacking in this series is that, uh, though that's the case here in Western culture, with each passing year, we actually know less and less about Jesus. So the end result is, we all have this natural tendency to recreate Jesus in our own image, based on what we've been taught, what we've learned, uh, images we've had from our past, kind of cultural images, cultural trends... So our goal in this series is really to go back in time and to capture what I'm calling an unfiltered image of Jesus, to go back and look at one of the most important early documents that, that describes the teaching, that the life of Jesus, uh, we call it the Gospel of Matthew, and to unpack that and see if we can get a more accurate view of who Jesus is and then therefore what it means to follow him. And so, uh, if you've been in this series, last week we came to chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. And if you have your Bible, if you are your apps, i encourage you to open it up, whether it's here or over in the Ridge. Um, And and so, uh, we're going to turn to the middle of the chapter, and let me just set it up. There in your note sheet, there's a section called, uh, The Baptism of Jesus, The Place of Anointing. And so, today we're going to come to one of the most important events in the life of Jesus, It's really the event that's going to launch his whole ministry, public ministry. It's going to move him from private to public. And for those of us who are like longtime Christ followers today, if you consider yourself a longtime Christ follower, you're fairly familiar with the story of Jesus, this is going to be one of those events we're going to have to definitely work to take some filters off of. It's one of those times where as longtime Christ followers, we often miss the obvious and what we've learned before often gets in the way. And so it's going to be an exciting time. I mean, by the time we get done today, we're going to have a clearer picture of who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. So uh, what, what's going to happen, if you were here last week, we left, um, we, we left this scene where um, Matthew has introduced us to one of the key characters in the whole story of the human race, a character we often tend to overlook, but a man named John uh, the Baptist. So he's a, he's a man who comes. He comes. He stands between sort of the two worlds of the, the Old Testament, law and prophets, and the new world, the kingdom of God. And, uh, and God has chosen him to prepare the way for the coming of the kingdom of the heavens. Um, and so this is this kingdom of God that's about to break into time and space. And so John, as you know, he's, con- he's gone out into the wilderness and did a great job last week. A lot of symbolism here. He's going to call the nation back to the wilderness where their story began. He's going to call them back to meet with God where God first revealed himself. And he's going to call them back not just to the wilderness, but to the Jordan River. And think of this. This is where the story of Israel began when they crossed over the Jordan right by Jericho and into the promised land. So he's going to call them back to the wilderness to meet with God. We don't know exactly where John was baptizing. We believe it was very near Jericho. We'll see that today. And uh, so he's calling them back to kind of do a do-over as a nation. They've rejected God. They've kind of been far from God. Let's go back to where it all began, and let's get ready for the coming of the new kingdom. And so what we're going to watch today is Jesus, uh, along with hundreds and thousands of other Jews, are going to make the long journey uh, outside Jerusalem, about twenty miles outside Jerusalem, to the Jordan River, um, where 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 he is going to be baptized with the rest of the nation who is coming to be baptized for forgiveness of sins. And so if you look at your Bibles, we're going to pick it up at chapter 3 and verse 13, and it says, so Jesus came from Galilee um, to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So we need to get oriented. So inside your, uh, your, your note sheet today, you've got a map. And so you can't really know Jesus without maps. So um, if, you, if you don't like maps, we're going to pray for your conversion today. And we're going to welcome you into the kingdom of the heavens. Um, because it's really hard to understand the Bible really well without kind of some geography. So the nation of Israel is about the size of New Jersey. All right? It's not real big. Um, at the time of Jesus, divided into certain regions. And so we're going to get Orient. Now, this map is very small. So if you can't read it, what that means is you're very old. Um, so what you need to do, uh, is, here's what I'd suggest. Uh, I think I've alienated about half. So, uh, what, what we need to do is, is what you need, if you cannot read this, which it is a challenge, it's very small. Take a picture with your phone and then expand it. All right. So, so here's we're going to find the Sea of Galilee. It's at the top. Do you see that Sea of Galilee? Everyone got that? No? No. Okay. Good. All right. Ridge, you got that? They're not helping me over here. All right. So, okay, Sea of Galilee. Um, you see at the top. Notice at the top of the Sea of Galilee, on the northwest corner, there is a city called Capernaum. You see that? Circle that. That's going to be very important in the life of Jesus. Not today, but that's going to become the center of operations. But if you go to the left, you see in all caps the area called Galilee. Now, Galilee actually has a northern, kind of upper Galilee and a lower Galilee. We're not going to go into that. But you see that region of Galilee. Now, right below Galilee, you'll see uh, the city of Nazareth, the village of Nazareth. We'll going to circle that. That's, uh, that's about uh, 200 to 500 people, very small. By the way, it's 26 miles on a major road that goes from Nazareth to Capernaum, all right? It gives you a scale. So uh, now as you, move, as you move south, you'll see in all caps the area of Samaria, kind of in the middle. You go further south to the bottom, you see the area in all caps of Judea, the southern, uh, southern region. And in Judea, right to the right of the all caps, you see the area kind of to the right and to the north of Jerusalem. See that? Okay, circle Jerusalem. Now, uh, Jerusalem, this is just funny because often we think about Jesus, often he is portrayed. This is one of the lenses that we need to clear up. We often portray Jesus as this kind of mystic prophet out in the middle of the hills of Galilee, looking up into the heavens, uh, kind of like he's lost in space, right? And so we don't think of Jesus as a kind of a modern, up-to-date, smart person but the city of Jerusalem at this time was a major cosmopolitan city. At the time of, uh, of Jesus, during, say, Passover, 500,000 Jewish pilgrims would come from all over the world. It was as much a Roman city with Roman architecture as it was a Jewish city. And so, um, anyway, if you, if you uh, identify Jerusalem, then we're going to go to the right of Jerusalem over to the top of the Dead Sea. Now, it's not labeled but you'll notice there's a river that goes from the top of the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. That is the Jordan River. And right there at the top of the Dead Sea, you see a place called Bethany. This is one of the places we believe very likely is where John the Baptist was baptized. We're not sure for sure, but this would make a lot of sense because it'd be close to the capital. Uh, it's about 18 miles from, from, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see Jericho there to the left. Uh, and this is where the nation of Israel started their journey in the wilderness, crossing the Jordan at Jericho. And so, so John's calling the nation back to the wilderness to meet with God back to the Jordan. We're going to cross the Jordan in baptism again uh, to prepare for the coming of the kingdom. Now, so that's the stage set. So Jesus today is going to make this journey, several day journey from Nazareth in the north in Galilee down to the Jordan River. Now, one of the questions we have to ask today, and today we're going to ask a lot of questions, um, and even though this passage we're covering is very short, I'm going to talk a long time. So, um, so if, you think, if you're looking forward to getting practical, just hold your horses. You're going to have to get smarter today. All right, so here we go. Uh, so the first question I want to ask is, how well does Jesus know John at this point? That's a really interesting question. Um, here's what we know, uh, here's what we can say for sure. Uh, we know that Jesus and John were related. Uh, their parents, uh, their mothers were related, Elizabeth and Mary were related. We don't know what the relationship was, but they, they're related. We also know that John was the son of a priest. Now, you may not know this, but at the time of Jesus, there were 24 divisions of priests, and they would serve, each division would go to Jerusalem to serve in the temple two weeks a year. So that means that John grew up with a dad who two weeks a year was going to serve at the temple. Um, and so being from a priestly family, we I mean, can safely assume, probably assume that John went to Jerusalem on a regular basis growing up that, uh, to celebrate at least the three great pilgrim feasts of which Passover was uh, one of the most important in the spring every year. We also know that Jesus, according to Luke 2, we'll look at later, we know that Jesus would travel to Jerusalem every year uh, for Passover, for the seven, seven or eight-day feast of Passover um, with his family. And so it would, I think it's fair to assume that since they're related, since they're in Jerusalem at least a week together every year, they probably grew up knowing each other. I think it's very likely that Elizabeth, his mother, had told John the story about when, Jesus, when, when Mary first came and, they, and the baby leapt in her womb and that sort of thing. So those are probably fair assumptions. So I think what we can assume is that very likely that they did know each other so then when Jesus came to be baptized this day, they probably recognized each other. They probably had a little bit of history. Um, once, and then it's interesting though, from John's gospel, it seems clear that, that uh, John the Baptist did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until the event of this day is going to happen. So so when he comes, he knows Jesus. Uh, We're going to be clear he's going to have some connection with Jesus. He's got an opinion about Jesus we're going to see, but we don't know exactly um, what's going to happen. So let's do a little bit more reading at the speed of light. Okay, so in verse 13, so Jesus comes from Galilee uh, to the Jordan to be baptized, and John tries to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Uh, Notice, if there's any baptizing here, we need to do it, vice versa. Um, and, uh, but Jesus pushes back, and he says, um, hey, no, it is uh, let it be so for now, because it's proper, it's right to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I want you to circle that phrase, fulfill all righteousness. And I want to remind you what we've seen in Matthew this theme of fulfillment is huge in Matthew, right? It's what we've seen all the way through. That what is Matthew's claim is that Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel. That everything in the early story, the chapters of the story of Israel, is going to be leading up to the intro to this great character, the hero of the story, Jesus of Nazareth, who is going to fulfill the story and bring it to its close. He is the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies of Messiah. We've seen that all the way through. So. This is very significant language. Jesus walks out into the water. He sees John. John says, what are you doing? This doesn't feel right to me. He doesn't know he's the Messiah yet, but they have enough relationship to where he's like, this doesn't feel right. Like, we should be doing this opposite way, but Jesus says, don't trust me in this. There is a reason for this. This is a fulfill. I am fulfilling the story. Now, here's the next question that I want to ask. The next question is, why is Jesus getting baptized, and what does he think is about to happen as he walks in the water? That's really interesting, because we know this is a baptism of repentance. So why is Jesus coming to be baptized? And secondly, what does he think is about to happen when he is baptized? So for this, we need to do a long sidebar, and we need to talk about Jesus, and we need to talk what do we know about Jesus up to this point, point? and this is going to challenge some of you. It's going to blow some of your minds. It's going to make some of you uncomfortable. That's my job. So uh, <laughs> here we go. So what do we know about Jesus? Well, we know, number one, we've studied the early chapters of Matthew, right? So we know that Jesus was born of a virgin, supernatural conception. We know the, angel, we know the, the wise men, we know the whole stuff, right? So we, we know that. Um, but Matthew stops the story when he's two or three years old that we haven't seen anything uh, since him, right? Okay, so we, that's something. From Mark's gospel, what do we know? We know from Mark's gospel that Jesus grew up uh, in the home of a blue-collar worker. His father was, in Greek, a tecton, in Greek, uh, which is where we get our word architect from. He's a tecton, which means a construction worker. In Israel, that means most likely more construction in terms of stone masonry than carpentry because there's hardly any wood in Rome, very little wood going on, building going on, Well, a lot of stone. So, so we know that Jesus, uh, from Mark's gospel, he is called a tecton. He's a, he's a stone worker. We also know from uh, Mark's gospel that Jesus is the oldest child in a family with at least seven kids, okay? Uh, which is really interesting because, you know, Jesus is single, right? We're going to learn from Luke's gospel, moving on to Luke, we, we learn that Jesus is um, he's, he's 30 years old, about, he's about 30 years old. And catch this, men would get married from 18 to 20, maybe even earlier. So it's kind of odd that he's single at this point. He probably stands out in the community. But catch this, he's got all these younger brothers that probably got married younger and already had kids. That means he's probably Uncle Jesus, now, does that blow your mind or what? All I right. was All right. like, I love my uncle. You can see what he can do. It's amazing. Um, my uncle can beat up your uncle. Um, anyway, so, okay, so we, we know he's 30 years old. Um, and here's, here's what's most fascinating. In Luke's gospel, he gives us an insight into Jesus at 12 years old. Now, Luke is the only one who does this. Right? He gives us a fascinating insight that really challenges, I think for many of us, the way we see Jesus and understand kind of what was it like to be Jesus. What did he think? Why did he do what he did? And so let me set it up. In Luke chapter 2, we're told that every year Jesus and his family would go to Passover. Uh, so they'd make the long journey down. Now, in that day, most people who would travel to Jerusalem, they would travel in caravans because for safety's sake. So, uh, so, so his family, they're going down to Jerusalem. Um, they're down there for the week of Passover, and now they're going to leave. And so they're probably traveling in a large caravan. And so uh, as they get away at the end of the day, they can't find Jesus. I and mean, he's 12 years old. Remember now? And in that culture, 12 is older than 12 today. I mean, they're closer to getting married, manhood, and stuff. But still, you know, he's 12. So they can't find Jesus. And you can just Joseph said to Mary, like, Hey, you got Jesus? I thought you had Jesus. No, it's your week to have Jesus. You know, and so they can't find Jesus, and so they got to go back, but they've been traveling all day, right? So they got to go back to Jerusalem that's just been evacuated by 500,000 pilgrims. It's a, it's a very cosmopolitan city. They're going to have to travel back now all day to, to get to Jerusalem, and start looking for their kid. Now, let me ask you, if you have a 12-year-old and you've lost him in a major cosmopolitan city, how are you feeling about that? Most of us here are probably freaking out. There are probably a few of us who are saying, I've got a 12-year-old. That sounds awesome to me. I hope God bless you, be adopted, prosper. I hope they do better with you than we have. But probably most of us here are thinking like, yeah, we're kind of freaking out, right? So we're we're really, and so they get back, and so sure enough, they're looking high and low. They can't find Jesus. They don't find him until the third day. On the third day, they're like, do you think you could be in the temple? I don't know. What are you doing in the temple? I don't know. Well, Let's go check. Now, remember, the temple, it is a huge complex. It is three football fields long on one side. It is five football fields long on the other. It is a walled fortress. It's more like a castle than a church. The temple has a small footprint inside. The courts, and their, according to scholars, could hold up to 200,000 people during Passover. So they're now, after all this, they're looking for Jesus, and they finally find him. And he, sure enough, he's in the temple grounds, and he's sitting with some of the leading rabbis of the day. And catch this, he is sitting and listening. He is learning. He is in a learning posture. Now, this is interesting because I think for some of us who've grown up in church, we've got kind of to visualize like he's there on a little podium explaining everything. That is not the picture. The picture is he's hungry to grow, he's trying to figure out the God of Israel, he's trying to understand Torah, the scriptures. And he is listening to them, and he's asking questions of them. And in typical rabbinic style, they're asking questions of him, and they're pretty amazed at his understanding for a 12-year-old. And so this is so important. I want you to see this with your own eyes. There in your note sheet, Luke chapter 2. So after three days, they found him in the temple courts, and he's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them. What's he doing? Listening. Listening. Circle it. And he's asking them questions. He's in a learning posture. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he is pursuing God. He is learning. He's growing. He's listening. He's evaluating. In my mind, there's some other answers that probably made sense. There's other part of his things like, I don't think that makes sense that later on, 20 years later, become part of his teaching. No, this was wrong. But he's learning, he's growing. And so when his parents saw him, they're astonished, right? They're just blown away. Like, what are you doing?" And his mother said to him, "Son, why have you treated us like this?" Are you in there? It's kind of like, "What are you thinking?" Like, what, you've been gone for three days. You're acting like nothing's happened." Now how, did, how many that sounds like a typical 12- year- old, right? It's like, "What?." <laughs> uh, Of course I'd be playing video games. Um, So anyway, he says, uh, says, well, why were you searching for me? What? Why are you searching for me? You've been lost for three days. And your question is, why are we looking? Are you with me in this? Isn't it crazy? And so he he says, he says, well, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Again, what I want you to see is he seems genuinely surprised. He's like, well, it just seems obvious to him. So I want you to catch, he's got this special sense of connection with his father, even at 12. And it's a really interesting question to ask. When did that start with him? At what age did he begin to realize there was something about him that was different? And how did he realize that? I don't know if we can answer that one. But anyway, he, but to him it seems obvious. But here's what I want you to catch. It's not obvious to them at all. They don't know what he's talking about. So he says, um, they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So after that, he went down to Nazareth. And by the way, in the Bible, Jer- you always go up to Jerusalem. It's 2,500, 3,000 feet. You, you go up to Jerusalem. You go down. So even though Nazareth is to the north, like we would say, they went up to Nazareth. They always go down. So, um, they didn't understand what he was saying, but they went down to Nazareth with him, and he was obedient, but his mother treasured up all these things, like, wow, what was that about? And, uh, but catch this, and as Jesus grew up, he increased in what? Can we say it again? He increased in? I want you to catch the implications. What that means is he is smarter and wiser at 16 than he is at 12. And he is smarter and wiser at 20 than he is at 16. And he is smarter and wiser at 26 than he is at 20 and 30. And I would suggest to you he is smarter at 33 at the end of his ministry than at 30. And there are many reasons that I would believe this, but let me just give you one one example real quick. You know, in the book of Hebrews, we're told that uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer says, although Jesus was a son, he's talking about his Gethsemane experience and his death then. And he says, although Jesus was a son, he catches, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And once he was, quote, perfect or mature, he became a source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. So what what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that through this final test that he went through in Gethsemane and the cross, this was the final stage of his maturation, his growing in obedience. So just to be clear on this, we're not saying that he had sinned before this, but there was, there's a difference between innocence and perfection, maturity, and that he is growing and learning up to the very end. Now, this challenges our view of Jesus and what it means to be like. This is where some some filters need to come off. Uh, Because I think for many of us, let me give you two filters that you may have or may have experienced. uh, You may not know you have, but I think you may have them. I think we all do. One filter is what I would call the Superman filter. I think for many of us, when we read the gospel accounts, we think of Jesus like Superman. Superman. So, help me out here. Uh, most people that lived around Superman, who do they think Superman was? Clark Kent. Thank you. <laughs> Clark Kent. The last server is like, I don't know. Uh, it's like, <laughs> hello, read your comics. Uh, watch a movie, you know? Um, anyway, so yeah, Clark Kent, right? So, if you're around Superman, most of the time, you think he's Clark Kent. Now, as the audience watching the show, we know he's really Superman. But for people in his world, they don't know that. They think he's Clark Kent. And so what does Clark Kent do? He goes around and he always pretends like he's really not Superman. He pretends he's normal. In fact, he pretends he's less than normal. He pretends he's weak. He pretends he's clumsy. He pretends he's a nerd, thus the glasses. Uh, he, yeah, uh, he, right, he's always pretending to not be who he is. And then every once in a while, when a crisis emerges, what does he do? He goes into the local phone booth. He strips off super fast his clothes, revealing the S, and now we see the real person. But the people out there, they don't know he's the real person. They think he's a different person. What I suggest to you is many of us, when we read the Gospels, we look at Jesus like Superman. He's really God, but he's kind of God in a bod. So he looks normal, but he's really not. And he kind of goes through life acting normal, acting like he's hungry, acting like he's confused, acting this way. But really, when the chips are down, he's, he pulls off his rabbi's deal, he calms the sea, and he's like, whoa! And Jesus of Nazareth is really Christos, you know? And so, uh, so that's how we look at him. And so I want you to think of the logic of this, like the implications. What this means is we often would see like if Jesus is born, he's just been born, he's laying in the manger, he's a mess, right? He's like laying there going like, oh man, the next two years are going to be so boring. I have got to act normal, right? Okay, when do I, When do I? yep, diaper time, here we go. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, time to suck. Okay, you know, like we're, it ought to be baby Jesus, right? And it's going to be a couple of years till I can even crawl. This is going to be boring. You know what, I think what I'll do, I'll just multitask and run the universe while I'm doing this. <laughs> then I'll come back. Are you with me? This is how we often see Jesus. You know, like he's really not, he's really not like a real person. So, so what, what do we believe theologically? Jesus is 100% God, he's 100% man. So what happens, we often think of the 100% God part and we just pretend like the man part is really like Clark Kent. Right? Here's a second analogy. The second analogy is an actor. Some of you are actors, are actresses. And so if we go to watch a play that you're in, we may not know the story, we don't know where it's going, but you as being a player in it as an actor and an actress, You know the story. You know where it's going to end up. You know everything is going to happen, and you know your lines. And so when it comes time for your lines, and so watching you, we don't know. We're like afraid for you, or we're, we're excited for you, or we're angry at you as we watch you, but you know where this story is going every step of the way. And often we read the Gospels. I think we know, we think it like that. Like Jesus, well, he's God. He knows everything. He knows his Bible because he wrote it. All right? Uh, he, you know, he really is that Superman guy. So he's going to pull out the power of things here pretty soon. And he's never really going to be surprised. And so he's like, he's saying these brilliant lines. But of course, he studied them before, right? He knew he knew this was going to happen. He knew the Pharisees were going to say this. And then he'd come back with a zinger and say that. Um, so we look at him like an actor in a play. But the, here's the problem. When you see Jesus like Superman, when you see him like an actor, we, lo- we can't relate to him. He's no longer like us at all. So he just becomes a supernatural person who comes to die for our sins. But what does he have to teach us? Because we're not like that. We don't know what's coming up. We don't have that kind of supernatural power. And so though we try to follow him, at the back of our mind, we never take it seriously because he's not like us. But what I would suggest is as we're going through this series, we're going to find he is like us. And stop and think about it. If Jesus knew everything was going to happen, why did he have to pray all night before choosing his disciples? Because he didn't know when he started the evening who they're going to be. Think when the Roman centurion comes up and says, Hey, would you come to my house and pray for my servant? He's really sick. Uh, He says, Would you just, uh, he says, Would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, Okay, I'll come with you. He says, No, you don't need to come. I'm a military man. I give orders all day long. I just tell people what to do. It's done. You're a man like authority. You can just say the word. You don't need to come. And it says, Jesus was astonished. He was blown away. I've not seen anything like this, even among Jews. Like, he's blown away. He didn't see that coming. And what we're going to see all the way through, when you get in towards the end of Matthew, he's talking about the end of time. He knows a lot of things about the end of time, but he says, he's I don't really know when this is all going to happen. You see what I'm saying? That, that Jesus, what we're going to see is we're going to see in this series, yes, that Jesus is the son, right? That he's the second person. Yes, he is the word made flesh, but when he came, he gave up. And as Philippians says, that he emptied himself and he became one of us. And so what we're going to see in this series is we're going to see Jesus being led by the Spirit. We're going to see him learning to listen and follow. And we're going to to watch. So, So it's really interesting today as we watch Jesus come to the water to be baptized by John, what's clear is he seems called to do this. He seems clear this is the right thing to do. But I would suggest to you, chances are he doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets there. In fact, to support this, next week we're going to see that after he's baptized, the very first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit, who's just been anointed him, is going to lead him into the wilderness. He's going to drive him into the wilderness, which suggests that he didn't have a plan. Y'all go get baptized, let i go in the wilderness for 40 days. That he went to be baptized because that's what he was told to do. He did not know what's going to happen next. That he had to get orders from the Holy Spirit. And how we how this plays out really impacts the way we see Jesus and the model He is for us. So, so anyway, so let's. Uh, that was a long sidebar. You think the sermon's over, but we're just getting started. <laughs> but anyway, so, so in verse fifteen. Jesus, hey, let it be so. It's proper. It's the right thing to do to fulfill all righteousness. So John consents. Now, as he's baptized, then three things are going to happen, and these are big. And again, longtime Christ followers. let's take off some lenses here. We read this, we're so familiar, we miss the obvious. But let me ask you this, how many times in all of history in the Bible, how many times are the heavens opened and God speaks? See, there was Mount Sinai. What else? This is really, what is happening here is a dramatic moment in the history of planet Earth. What's happening here is really unusual. The moment he comes up, and my suggestion is, my guess is, Jesus didn't see it coming. And when he comes up, uh, the Gospels of the heavens were open. In other words, the, the veil that separates the seen from the unseen is torn. In fact, in Matthew's Gospels, they said the heavens were torn. And, and the, the realm between the seen and the unseen is pulled back, and God is going to speak. From the heavens. This is historic. This is big. And so he says three things happen. So first of all, the heavens are open. Secondly, it happens the Spirit of God descends like a dove. So, so like, the, like the kings of old, will see we're anointed by the Spirit. The Spirit comes. And number three, a voice from heaven says, and we're going to hear echoes here of three Old Testament passages. God speaks. He says, this is my son, um, uh, or in other, uh, other gospels, you are my son, uh, whom I love. And with him, I am well pleased. Three carefully chosen statements that are echoes from Israel's history. All right? So we're going to roll up our sleeves now. We're going to jump in, and we're going to talk about this event. It's a critical event that launches the ministry of Jesus. Like, this is where, this is D-Day. This is go time. This starts his his calling. Um, And three things that are revealed, that God is going to reveal in this baptism they're going to help us understand who Jesus is and then therefore what it means to follow him today. So there in your note sheet you have a section called The Baptism of Jesus, The Great Reveal. And I want to identify three things that God reveals in this supernatural moment, the start of the movement of Jesus. Number one, the first thing is, is that Jesus is the Son. Now, uh, here we've got, uh, we got to pull some filters off. When you and I say Jesus is the son of God, if you're a longtime believer, maybe even fairly new at this, you understand that when we say that, it's a reference to his deity, right? He's the son of God. He's he's the second person of the Trinity. Here's what I wanted you to catch. No one there that day would have heard it that way. That in Israel, this concept of the son of God has a long history. And so I want to take you back in time to how John would have heard this, how the crowd would have heard this that day. So let's go back to the start of the story of Israel, back in Genesis chapter 12. God calls a man named Abraham to to launch a new nation, and he promises him, though you're beyond childbearing years, though you've never been able to have a kid, you're going to start a nation. And he says, You're going to have a son. And of course, we know that miracle son that's born about 30 years later is whom? Who's that miracle son? (laughs) Hello? Okay, we got one wrong answer. Uh, It's miracle son. Miracle son. Laughter. His name's Laughter. Isaac. Isaac. Good. All right. So, miracle son is born Isaac, right? So now the son grows up, teenager or whatever. And I want you to remember what what we just said, what what God just said. He said, you're my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. I told you, there are three echoes, right, of the Old Testament. So let's go back, and God comes to Abraham, and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and I want you to take him to a location three days' journey away a place called Mount Moriah. What's going to happen on Mount Moriah in the future? It's where the temple will be built. It's where the Lamb of God will be sacrificed in Jerusalem. Take your son, your only son, the son. Take him to Mount Moriah. So, and you—if you remember the account—Abraham obeys. He goes up there, ready to kill his son. And all of a sudden, the angel of Yahweh steps in and says, no, stop it. This was a test. He says that here's a ram, a substitute. And it says, from that day on, there was a saying in Israel, on the mountain of the Lord, on the mountain of Yahweh, it shall be provided. And so the first time we hear about the son of Abraham, we have this picture of a substitute. The second time we come to this concept of son is in Exodus chapter 4. We talked to this passage a few weeks ago. God said to Moses, "Go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh he said that Israel is my firstborn son. Tell Pharaoh to let my son go." Are you with me? So we have Abraham has a son. That son becomes God's son, the nation of Israel. And now we're going to move forward in time. We come to the time of King David, and God promises David, from you is going to come a line of kings. And he said, you will have a son, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Look there on your note sheet. I put this one there from 2 Samuel 7. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. And catch this. From this point on, the sons of David, the rulers of Israel, of Judah, the, the Davidic kings, are known as the son of God. And so in the first century, if you're a Jew, the son of God is a reference not to the second person of the Trinity. They're monotheistic. If you're a Jew in first century Israel a reference to the son of God is a reference to the son of David that will come the great king it won't be divine he'll be like king David 2.0 and so in this moment if you're there what we have is we have God tearing the heavens and saying this is the messianic son of David this is my son And what happened when David was anointed? What happened? Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of how David became king? This is the story we started the day with. This was the boy that's out in the field. His brother comes to get him. It's a day that's going to change his life. He comes in. When he gets in, have a family meeting. All his seven older brothers are there. Who's there? The prophet Samuel is there. Whoa! Scary guy. And no one sees his coming, but Samuel is going to anoint, not the oldest, not the second, but the runt of the litter, number eight. He's going to anoint him to be king. And do you remember what happened when he anointed him? There in your note sheet. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of the brothers to be king. Remember, anointed one means Mashiach, Messiah. Messiah. He anointed him, and from that day on, the Spirit of Yahweh came on David in power. On that day, the prophet comes, as was the custom, anoints with oil the future king of Israel. The Spirit of God comes upon him to empower him to launch his kingdom. And now we step forward in time to the baptism. The heavens are parted, and God himself anoints his true son, the son of David, with the Holy Spirit to launch his kingdom. So what we have here at the very beginning, and let me just be clear, if you were there that day, if you were to ask me, do you think people there in the crowd that day understood what was happening? I'd say, of course not. Any more than people at the death of Jesus go, I know what is happening, he's dying for our sins. Now this all becomes clear on the reflection later on. But it's very clear looking back that the Father is anointing his son as the true king of Israel, and empowering him to bring his kingdom. Now, the second thing, the second thing that's happening that's, that God is revealing is that Jesus is the servant. And They say, "Well, what do you mean?" Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets—I mean, the, the the leaders of Israel, uh, like Moses, like Joshua, like David—were often called the servants of Yahweh. They were his servants, carried as well. Um, But what's really interesting is when we get to the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah begins to talk to us about this mysterious figure that will one day come in Israel's history that he calls the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, all caps. And as you read through Isaiah, it's kind of confusing, like, what is this talking about? Because sometimes it's clear that the servant of Yahweh is referring to the nation of Israel that they are God's servant. They, they're supposed to be the conduit of his light to the world, and yet it's clear from Isaiah that this servant has dropped the ball, and they have, 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 uh, have done a bad job of this. They've failed at the task of being the light to the world. And so in the midst of this context, Isaiah begins to prophesy about a servant of Yahweh that's clearly not the nation as a whole, but is an individual in the nation. And the very first time that we hear about this is about individuals in Isaiah 42, and I put it there on your note sheet. So, Isaiah prophesies, and so God is speaking, he says, here is my servant, so circle that word. This is going to be an important word for you to get in for Matthew. Servant of Yahweh. You need, this is a very important character in the Bible. And here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I what? So go back to the baptism. This is my son, the son I love, With him I'm well pleased. We're hearing echoes, and I will put my what? My spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will bring in the kingdom of God with his justice and his righteousness for all nations, right? And so what's interesting is that here at the baptism, it seemed fairly clear that the Father is identifying and revealing Jesus of Nazareth, not only the great king, the Messiah of Israel but as the servant of Yahweh who will come. But here's what's interesting. As you follow on in Isaiah of what we learn about the servant of Yahweh, you're going to get to a very famous passage at the end of chapter 52 in all of 53. And many are familiar with this passage because it talks about the servant of Yahweh that will be sent to the nation of Israel, but when he is sent, he will not be recognized. He will be rejected. And he'll be persecuted, and he'll be put to death. And when he's put to death, the nation will really believe he's getting what he deserves. And yet the irony is, is that he is dying for the sins of the nation. And so this gives insight then. Remember we asked the question, why is Jesus going to be baptized for repentance of sins? Why is he doing that? Why is he stepping out into the waters? And suddenly, this makes a lot of sense, or at least it's one possible understanding. It makes a lot of sense that if he is a servant of Yahweh who's coming to stand as a representative for the nation, that the very first start of his ministry, he comes with a sinful nation and he stands with them to say, I am with you. I am here for you. I have come to suffer as a servant of Yahweh for the nation. And this is powerful. And so the Father is revealing here, He is not just the King, He is the servant of Yahweh who has come to suffer for the sins of the nation, for their freedom. And then finally, the third thing that the Father is revealing is that Jesus is the baptizer. And so for this we need to go back a few verses to chapter 3 and verse 11. Let's go back there. So we looked at this last week, so... um, you know, people were coming to John and trying find out who John was, John the Baptist. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Why are you baptized? He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, in other words, I'm not worthy to be a slave, and he will baptize you with what? Holy Spirit and fire. And so, so what's he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets had predicted that one day when the kingdom of God would come, several things would happen. All wrongs would be turned to right. The sick would be healed and so on. Justice would come to the nations. The wicked would be destroyed. Certain things are, are, kind, of, are kind of normal. But one of the things is predicted is that when, when the kingdom comes, that God will forgive the sins of the nation. He will remember their sins no more. But it was also predicted that he will not only will he forgive the nation, but that he would send his spirit to the nation. In new power to change him from the inside out. So for example, Ezekiel 36, I will take away your heart of stone, I will give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit on you, and I will move you to do my will. Uh, Jeremiah 31, I will establish a new covenant in that day where I will not just, I will forgive your sins, but I will also write my law on your heart. In other words, when the kingdom came, this would be a healing of all creation, but it'd be healing of the human heart, that God would pour out his spirit to do for us what we cannot do for Himself. ourselves, that he would change us from the inside out and empower us to live out the law of God, to be the people that we're supposed to be, to love God and love people. It's a promise. And so what John is saying as he says, listen, I am coming, I am baptizing with water. It's a sign of repentance, but the one who's coming he will baptize, initiate this new age of the Spirit. He will immerse you and drench you and drown you in his Holy Spirit. And so, of course, this is what Jesus is referring to after his resurrection, his death and resurrection. We're starting here at the beginning of the story. You go to the end of the story, his death and resurrection. And remember, he, after his resurrection, he's ready to go back to the Father to, to sit at his right hand to be, to be lifted up as the king of all creation, to be crowned. But before he leaves, this is what he says in Acts 1. He says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, after the resurrection, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus has said is, now that I've come now that I've died, I'm going to go ascend to, to the right hand. Be, uh, I'm going to be proclaimed king of all creation. And once that happens, I will receive the promise of the Father, and I will pour out my spirit on my followers. I will baptize you in the spirit, just like I promised. So here's what I want you to catch. In this one event, at the baptism, it is huge. It's the launching of the ministry of Jesus. It's not going through, this is not an actor going through the motions. This is Jesus coming in obedience to the Father, standing out saying, this is what he's asked me to do, fulfill all righteousness. I don't think he saw what was coming. And when he came out of the water, the heavens are open, and God says, you are the anointed king of Israel. You are are the servant of Yahweh. You are the one who will baptize. And from this point on, we're going to see the next thing that happens is the Spirit now comes upon Jesus in power, and he will begin to listen and follow the Holy Spirit. And the very first thing that has happened is the Holy Spirit will take Jesus out into the wilderness like Israel of old, and where they were tested and failed, he will test, be tested and succeed to prepare him to launch his kingdom for which he's been anointed. Now, let's just land the plane for us. This us just take a couple minutes, right? But this is the, the critical point. So as we enter into the story of Jesus, as we take off filters, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means three things based on his identity. To be a follower of Jesus, and this is the only way anyone enters the kingdom of the heavens, to be a follower of Jesus means we go down on our knee to the king. He is the king. There's only one way into the kingdom, and that is on our knees. And this is why both John and Jesus, their opening message is repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. If you want to be part of this kingdom, it's on bended knee. There is no entrance to the kingdom without a radical repentance that I no longer rule my life. I have been living in rebellion. I am going to the Jordan. I am confessing my sins. I am coming under the leadership of the true king. So becoming a follower of Jesus, we go down to our knees. We say, I come under your leadership. Number two, we receive the gift of forgiveness from the suffering servant, his life for ours. As we turn from our sin, we're given the gift, I like to call it, of total amnesty for all crimes against the kingdom. And the third thing is while we're on our knees, Jesus baptizes us with his Holy Spirit. And he says, I want to take the spirit that's in me the spirit of Yahweh that's on me that I received in my baptism and I want to put my spirit on you so you can live and move in the power of my Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means we have surrendered to his leadership. It means we've been washed by his death. It means we've been empowered by his spirit. And so today we're going to go and we're going to be celebrating communion. But here's what I want you to catch. Don't stop listening right now. I know those are magic words. The voice, that we're gonna say communion. It's like notes go away, by the way, phones go away. Okay, check my text. Oh, yeah. Uh, stick with me two more minutes, all right? Uh, we're gonna be celebrating communion. What is communion? What is it about? Well, at the end of Matthew, we're gonna to come to a Passover, the final Passover. No accident, Jesus chooses Passover. Passover is the story of Israel, how God rescued them from the great enemy, Egypt, and set them free to a new life by the blood of a lamb. And Jesus says, let me tell you how I'm going to fulfill that story. I am the greater lamb that's going to set you free from a greater sin, the power of sin, the power of death. And he said, so this bread that we're sharing at Passover, this is my body. And he said, this blood that we share together, this wine that we share This is my blood, and catch what he said, it's the blood of the new covenant. What covenant? The Jeremiah 31 covenant, when the kingdom would come, and the suffering servant would come, and God would write his law in our hearts. So as we come today to celebrate communion, here's what I'd say. Number one, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. Number two, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would suggest you don't take communion until the time you decide to bow to your king, receive the gift of forgiveness and the gift of his Holy Spirit. You can just kind of, the lights are down and down, you can find a place to pray, it doesn't be awkward like that, you can get up and move, meditate, whatever. Number three, uh, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there is no better way than to decide to follow Jesus through communion. And so if you're here and you say, I want to bow my knee to the king. I want to have my sins forgiven and I want to be filled with his spirit so rivers of living water can flow out to heal this world. This is for you. No better way than to come and to ask Jesus into your life by taking communion. And the last thing I'd say to those of us who are Christ followers here, if you're here and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you've not been letting him rule as king and you've not been listening and following the spirit that you've been baptized with, i got to tell you that right here now, you are living at odds with yourself. You are at war with your true self. And there's no better way to get back on track than to come to this table and to remind yourself of who you are and to receive that forgiveness and bow the knee and to ask him to fill you with his spirit again that you may listen and follow. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for this time where we can come and just kind of peel back the layers and look at the story of Israel and see how you have been the fulfillment, that in this one event, that you are the greater son who would be our substitute, the son that is loved, the son of Abraham, that you are the greater son, the son of Israel, the suffering servant who will die for us, that you are the greater son of David who's come to reign, that the story of Israel has been leading up to your story, and here in this one event, you're revealed as the Son of God, as the suffering servant, and as the great baptizer. And so we pray, God, as we come and worship you now, that you'd meet with us in a powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you stand with me? We're going to be going into a time of worship around the room, our communion tables. As you feel led, you can move to one that's closest to you. I believe in the name of Jesus and so many names. In John, he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. He is the Word of God. He is God in the flesh. That's his name. And today we've seen that his name is the Son of God, the great King of Israel. That was promised ruler of creation. We've seen that his name is the servant of the Lord, of Yahweh, who's come to die. We've seen that his name is the baptizer. One of the names of Jesus is our older brother. It's a name we often don't talk about, but Paul says in Romans 8 that that we were all predestined to be conformed to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In the book of Hebrews, The writer to the Hebrews said that since the children have flesh and blood, that he too became one of us, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And what we're going to see in this series is that, that Jesus was a lot more like us than we often think, that he's going to grow, he's going to learn, he's going to listen, he's going to follow. And next week, we're going to watch as he... Models for us how to listen and follow the Holy Spirit as He goes into the wilderness, like Israel of old after the Exodus, to be tested by God. But whereas they failed, He's going to succeed. But it's interesting because I really believe this when He went, He didn't know how long He would be there. He didn't know how long the test would be. When the test came, He didn't know what they were coming like, just like we don't. And so we're going to spend two weeks on the temptation of Jesus because we're going to get some great insights into who he is, what it means to follow him. But here's what I want you to catch. One of the reasons he came, according to 1 John, was to destroy the works of the evil one. And he came to do spiritual warfare on, on our behalf so that we could do warfare and win. He came to be tempted and win so that we would have the power to be tempted and win. And so I hope you can be with us next week as we go with Jesus out into the wilderness like Israel of old, to be prepared for his ministry. We're going to see what we can learn from him about what it looks like to win in times of trial, in times of temptation. Amen? Amen. So after the service, um, both here and over in the Ridge, we always have prayer to my right, your left. If you would need prayer about anything today, I encourage you to go over. There's people with badges over there, easy identifiable. They would love to hear what you're going through and pray with you. Until next week, may the Lord bless you. And may this be a week where you listen and follow as our older brother is teaching us to do. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.